This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. And we've been watching uh, a couple of the names uh, when it comes to their results. J.P. Morgan is down 1.3%. And a quick check on Goldman Sachs again. Uh, it is down just about half a percent off its lows of the days. Yeah, well, let's get right into it with Allison at Williams, Senior Global Banks Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Okay, so here we are, not quite halfway through big bank earnings, Allison. Um, how would you summarize what we know so far based on the two banks that reported today? So I think no big surprises, but uh, really a sort of a continuation of, of the trend in terms of some of the key concerns around net interest income and uh, higher expenses. So the, the the key for investors that are, are really focusing on is the potential for loan growth to uh, return in the second half. Banks really need that to help boost their net interest income. Trading was very good in the quarter. On the equity side of things, fixed income down as we expected. We expect further normalization in the second half. The big surprise out of the investment banking arm of the businesses was uh, merger and advisory. We expect that, uh, excuse me, mergers and acquisitions, the advisory business, we expect to continue to be strong in the second half. Um, but uh, but that's a small piece of it. And so, mm. in general, we have the big capital markets uh, piece normalizing. We have um, net interest income. A little bit disappointment, be, disappointing just because consumers are not borrowing. Corporations are using cash to buy companies. Consumers are using cash to fund their spending. Where, well, it's we, interesting. Well, when it comes to borrowing, uh, is it just consumers and businesses aren't interested? Or is it that... The banks are picky about who they give loans to. It's really more about the cash that corporations and consumers have on their balance Already? sheet. Okay. For consumers, it's really um, it's been fueled by the stimulus. So mm-hmm. um, our economics department, uh, um, Bloomberg and Economics Department, has calculated over $2 trillion. Um, and what we've seen with all the stimulus payments that have come so far is consumers have use that money to pay down debt. So that's healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, And they're spending, but they're just paying that out of savings. And then on the corporate side of things, um, as you recall, a year ago when the pandemic took hold, uh, corporations drew down on their credit lines at banks. However, when the capital markets opened up, especially the large corporates, um, tapped those capital markets. So we've seen um, very strong debt issuance, um, over the past year, and in fact, in the most recent quarter, very strong high yield issuance. Um, so they're continuing to to raise funds. Um, and then, what you know, on the commercial side of things, um, it's really that um, again, we we need the demand side to pick up. So it's not the banks are out there; they have tons of deposits tons of liquidity. They want to make loans, but the demand is just not there yet. So I wonder what what was expected from from shareholders and and if their expectations were not met, especially when it comes to JP Morgan, because shares down by more than 1.3%. It doesn't sound like there was that much that was surprising. Well, yes. So I would keep in mind, it was a very strong quarter, but most of the strength that we saw were things that... um, had been expected. We had a huge uh, reserve release 
Um, again, that's something that investors are expecting. The I guess the new news, and, and again, that interest income disappointing, but we had sort of you know been trending that way over the last several quarters, but the new news in terms of expenses. And expenses, I think, are something we're going to continue to be focusing on this week across the banks. J.P. Morgan got it to $68 billion of expenses in January. That's gone up. Um, to 69 to 70 and now today 71 billion and i do think that you know part of it is because the revenue is better but part of it is they're investing and i think that even though investors might be disappointed today jp morgan has shown over the last several years um, this uh, ability to fund what we call the virtuous cycle so they're spending more um, but that's helping them to make more Right. It's longer term investments. It's, it's, Correct. I know. It's we hard. all want management to think long term. <laughs> and so I think we need to uh, think long term along with them. And, and with the incredible trading that we've had over the last couple of years, we think it's actually healthy um, that the banks are investing this, especially yeah. with all the talk about fintech, all the competition from fintech. Um, and everything going on on that front. Well, exactly. We just talked about Citigroup specifically, right? Like, you know, looking at fintech, I mean, they're all staring it down. Uh, City City debuting that no-fee retail trading to compete with, you know, others. So a little bit of an opener for the, the rest of the big banks to, we're going to go here for what, Citigroup, we've got what, Bank of America, we've got Wells. Um, tell us what you're watching out for. So with Citigroup, um, they had actually already gotten to higher expenses for this particular quarter. We're going to be listening to see what the guidance is for the full year. We think the expense story there is a little bit more negative because a lot of the driver there is that they have to spend more um, to get sort of their systems in compliance. So they have some regulatory concerns and issues. So that um, expense spending where it's not generating revenue is a little bit less positive to us, but that that's the main thing we're looking for them. Bank of America, similarly, they mm. last quarter guided up expenses for the full year. Uh, Wells Fargo already has had elevated expenses. We're hoping them to come down. For all those banks, we're going to be looking in terms of, again, what is the loan growth outlook? What is the net interest income outlook? And then one thing we didn't touch on, Quickly. Uh, prime brokerage business, okay. very strong. Will uh, Bank America and Citigroup also show some strength there, gaining some share in the wake of Credit Suisse's pullback? You did it. You covered the universe. You're incredible. Allison, thank you, thank you. Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Global Banks Analyst, Allison Williams. This is a busy week for her. We know that she's joining us on the phone in New Jersey. It's just beginning. I know. Earnings off and running. This is Bloomberg. This story, among our most read on the Bloomberg, about Barry Sternlich's investment firm, they're giving up on malls. Yeah, Starwood Capital Group, they owned 30 malls before the COVID-19 pandemic. It is now down to eight. That is a massive decline. Yeah, so let's find out what's going on. John Gittleson is with us, real estate and investing reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in L.A. Hey, John, nice to have you here with Tim and me. First of all, I mean, Barry Sternlich's really well known to our audience. I mean, this is a guy who is big time in different types of commercial real estate. That's right. Yeah. I mean, Starwood Hotels, now part of Marriott. Anyway, that was his original, mm-hmm. you know, branding opportunity. Um, but yeah, he started out in distressed real estate. And uh, around 2012, he started buying up malls. He thought, you know, I can get a good deal on these and I could make money on them. Uh, but basically, the market was changing fast and then COVID hit and things got even worse. So he got caught basically underwater with a lot of these properties. And rather than pay and try and revive them, 
it didn't make sense to him. It made more sense, essentially, sell for a loss or hmm. walk away. And look, $2 billion sounds like a lot of money to for most things, but this is a relatively small part of Star Wars' portfolio, right? Well, yeah, I mean, about 5% of Star Wars' portfolio was in what it was is known as Starwood Retail Partners. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, imagine your stock portfolio and you have a bunch of companies that you're like, I'm just going to get rid of them and focus my energy, my resources on other opportunities out there that have more upside. It's a lot of work to deal with these malls. If you want to redevelop them, you take time, patience, skill sets that Maybe if I'm Barry Sternlich, I'd rather be spending my time on something that mm. I can make money on faster. Is this someone who's cutting their losses before they get worse? Like seeing the writing on the wall? Let me think. What other little little phrases, pithy phrases can I say? But you know what I'm <laughs> saying? Like saying, this is just not a good commercial space anymore. And does it speak to a bigger, larger story here, John? Well, it's definitely a bigger, larger story. I mean, we've all seen ghost malls have been developing for decades now. Mm-hmm. Um and it's accelerated since COVID, since, you know, e-commerce, um, and, and since shopping habits changed. Like, Carol, you were saying earlier, you haven't been to a mall in a while. No. Malls were built around department stores, and department stores are like the biggest casualties, you know, of shoppers who can go to Amazon or go to but- Walmart and... All those other kinds of things. But, John, I do always wonder, and forgive me, because I do feel like the coasts, you know, especially in New York, were like, all right, I, sh- I just shop online constantly. But if I go across the country and I've been in different states where I'm traveling and you do go to a mall or you have to go to a store, for like you just – you shop differently. Is that true the case? I just don't want to be so East Coast-centric. Or is well, it – I mean – Yeah. Or are they breaking down kind of all over the country? I would say it's all over the country. I mean, okay. these, these malls that Barry Sternlich owns, they're sort of like secondary malls in secondary markets. Mm-hmm. If you have a good mall, I live in Southern California, in Beverly Hills, uh, in Orange County, uh, in the right parts of, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley, outside Seattle, those, those are doing great. And people are still going to them and they're, now eating outside they're going to movies they're starting to do all of the other kind of activities on top of buying clothes that you used to do at a mall but there are so many malls in the united states we are overstored over retailed mm. compared to everywhere else in, on earth and then there are places that are really easy to get to i mean a, a walmart or a target is like a mall in one place right. for a lot of people and they're really you know discount good prices and easy in, easy out. Hey, John, just in the last 30 seconds we have with you, mm-hmm. who's buying these malls and, and what are they doing with them? Well, basically, people who are getting them are getting them at very low cost. And it really depends on the location. You can take out a department store, turn it into an apartment. You can turn it into maybe an office. You can turn it into a medical office or a school or you could turn it into a sort of last-mile distribution place. But you have to get the cost of the property down and an owner who has patient money so that they could take time because it takes a long time mm. to get all the approvals that are involved with repurposing a mall like this. 
Right. It's it's not so easy to just make a quick quick switch. What are you, what are you thinking? Yeah, it's it's just like such a small portion of the portfolio. It's crazy. Yeah, and and I do think there's something to be like top tier versus secondary tier. I think that's a good point yeah. that John made. Um, John Kittleson, thank you so much. Real estate and investing reporter at Bloomberg News from LA. Join him on uh, Twitter at John Git. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. We are highlighting another one of our most read stories on the Bloomberg today. This one about the NFL player turned lawmaker that was a rising star in the Republican Party, Tim, until he wasn't. It's in the upcoming issue of the magazine. It's written by Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week. Joel Weber is joining us as well, editor for Bloomberg Business Week. He's with us in the Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Josh is joining us on the phone from Washington, uh, D.C. Um, who is Anthony Gonzalez, and why, why isn't he a, a national name? Well, he is a national name, I think. Um, and I guess it Well, I guess in the, in the, in the vein of Liz Cheney, I guess I would say. Well, he's, he's actually kind of purposely kept his profile slightly lower, I think, than, than Cheney did. And, you know, Cheney obviously was like a pretty prominent position in the GOP. But I think what's um, really interesting about Josh's story is there were people – pre-January 6th, who, who really kind of looked like the future of the, of the GOP, right? And, and Gonzalez was one of those. And now he finds himself in a very difficult role of being a kind of once future leader of, of GOP, potentially a rising star, but mired by what has become from the Trump-supporting um, uh, GOP mm-hmm. uh, and and Josh, let's bring you in a little bit to to talk about that. What what has been his his tactic to date, and and how does that put him um, with his constituents? Yeah, you know, I mean, what's fascinating about Gonzalez is that he is every he embodies everything the Republican Party has wanted itself to be for the last twenty five years. Uh, he's young. He has a, he's the son of a Cuban immigrant. He was a first round draft pick of the Indianapolis Colts. He's got a business school degree, you know, serious, young, hip, all that kind of stuff. Clearly marked as a rising star. And then Trump came along and, and Gonzalez became one of the 10 people who, invoted, who, who voted to impeach him. And practically overnight, that sort of eclipsed everything else there is about Anthony Gonzalez. And the reason I picked this race, as, as somebody said earlier, he's not as prominent as Liz Cheney, who also voted to impeach Trump and has made that the entire like centerpiece of her political life. Uh, he's just a guy who, who, who voted on his conscience, voted to impeach Trump, but is still a conservative congressman with what he thinks is a successful record. So what it sets up is this wonderful test case. It's almost like a laboratory experiment in whether a serious Republican uh, conservative can get reelected after voting for Donald Trump. And, and what what's so interesting about this is that it's not just Republicans, but Democrats, too, are fascinated by this race because we think it's going to be a sort of a gauge about how mm. strong Trump's influence continues to be. One of my consultants, I quote in peace, uh, likened it to Groundhog Day. <laughs> That, you know, if 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 the Trump challenger to Gonzalez's wins, then we know it's going to be another season of Trump dominating Republican Party. Uh, but if Gonzalez manages to hold on to his seat, then maybe spring has arrived and we've begun to move beyond Donald Trump. And who's he going to be in a showdown with? Who's the who's the other faces? So his main challenge is a guy named Max Miller, who is a former Trump aide. Um, from the local area, uh, immediately won Trump's endorsement as soon as he jumped in the race, because Trump, as we all know, 
uh, revels in punishing his enemies, especially Republicans, and has gone after Gonzalez with a vengeance. His first big uh, rally, Trump's post-election at the end of June, he flew to Ohio uh, right outside Gonzalez's district to trash him and tell Republicans to vote against him. So that's a bit of a millstone if you're a Republican congressman running for re-election, but that's what Gonzalez has to deal with. I love that you write in your story that he, Gonzalez, appears to have a healthy relationship with his own political mortality. So he understands he's a football player. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Sometimes you're going to play and be a star player, and sometimes you're going to have another career after it. Tell us a little bit about his, his kind of approach. Yeah, well, I mean, what's what's been so, I think, disconcerting to a lot of you know Republicans and just, just sort of Americans generally, I think, is is the, the number of Republicans who've kind of truckled to Trump and gone along with, you know, whatever the conspiracy theory or lie is that, that he's sort of pushing. Uh, one name that gets mentioned a lot is South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, who, who sort of reinvents himself according to whatever politics uh, necessitates. And Gonzalez is adamant that he's not going to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the impeachment vote backs that up. But as he put it to me, I mean, he was a first-round draft pick with a great NFL career going. Uh, he tore up his knee. That, that career ended abruptly. But he was able to reinvent himself, went to business school, got elected as a congressman. So he doesn't fear his own political mortality in quite the way I think a lot of other pop, uh, politicians do. And, and that makes him interesting. He's willing to kind of speak the truth, stand up for what he believes in, and let the chips fall where they may. You also make the point, Josh, that he's set out to do, and he's actually getting done exactly what he set out to do, from infrastructure to to COVID relief to uh, vaccines. And also, he's had a pretty good couple of quarters of of, of fundraising. So he's been pretty successful thus far. Yeah, I mean, the other fascinating thing about this is, like, back in the times before Trump, um, you know, congressmen used to get measured for re-election on, hey, did you do what you campaigned right. on and, and said you had set out to do? The two two, two big components of, of, of Gonzalez's last race were, he said, look, we want to produce vaccine and distribute it to everybody who wants it. That's obviously happening now. And I want to push for a big bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, you know, in, in a couple weeks ago, Biden came out and announced big bipartisan infrastructure agreement uh, that Gonzalez had had a hand in negotiating. So, you know, by the old measure of whether or not you're a, you're an effective congressman, Gonzalez has a really good case to make. And he is a believer. Not everybody is. But he is a believer that that will still count for something with Republican voters uh, when primary time comes next spring. So next spring still feels like a long way away. When, when are we going to start to get a sense of what even the, the polls might suggest in, in this case study, Josh? I don't think we're going to know for a long time. I mean, by the early measures, Gonzalez is doing okay. I mean, his favorability ratings are strong. As you mentioned, you know, he's had, he's had two quarters of very strong fundraising. But he also has the loudest, most important voice in the Republican Party, Donald Trump's. Uh, going against him. So I think part of it will depend, you know, is Trump as powerful an influence, you know, nine months from now as he is today? If so, I think Gonzalez is going to have a tough time getting reelected. But a lot can happen between now and then. And Gonzalez has enough money to make a good case for himself publicly. So, you know, we're going to get just what I said we're going to get in this piece, which is a measure of Trump's effectiveness. Mm. Uh, and I think that's why everybody in the country is going to be looking at this race come next spring. Yeah, I did also think, as you pointed out, that it's he's had some strong fundraising, kind of the strongest that he's ever seen. And maybe it's an early indication. Hey, Josh, thank you so much. Josh Green, national correspondent, Bloomberg Businessweek, on the phone from Washington, D.C. Joel, do you have a last thought? 
Well, I'm also, you know, this is one of many races where there were people who voted again for, for impeachment. And I, I just am also going to be very curious to what happens in all those other districts. And do they go one way or is it like half and half or something, you know? Yeah, it'll be really telling in terms of what it means for Yeah, and how much Trump. does Trump hit the road ahead of that, too? Yeah, uh, well, I'm, I'm guessing a lot. Yeah, I am, too. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Oh, to be a fly on the wall. I couldn't wait to get to our next this guest. Is, this is what's so great about having everyone come back to work. We can like talk during the breaks. I love it. Yeah. All right. So let's get to it. Uh, she is in our studio with Tim and myself. It's a, one of our most read stories about those that are speaking out, pushing for more aggressive government policies to address societal problems. Let's get more on the ex-ESG insiders who are dissing and dismissing corporate green goals as hype. On this story, Bloomberg News ESG reporter Sejal Kishan, she is with us in our interactive broker studio. I do love this story. So tell us about the individual, um, Tariq Fancy. Yeah, well, he was, um, well, in the heart of the beast, so to speak. He's at BlackRock, the world's biggest um, BlackRock, yeah. huge. Um, and as you remember last year, Larry Fink came out and said he was going to put climate at the center of its investments, of its investment strategy. Um, Tarek was actually there. He actually left before BlackRock really ramped up. But, um, you know, he, he talked about his experiences. And, and it wasn't so much about being at BlackRock. His experiences were more broadly directed at the sort of the sustainable investing investing world um and he yeah he he talked about how yeah it's great having all these like low carbon funds these climate friendly funds esg etfs and exchange traded funds but they're not really enough to move the needle when we're dealing with the climate crisis because it is a crisis that's what the scientists are saying yeah so what more needs to be done i mean what are these ex-esg insiders saying isn't going far enough yeah i mean look they all say Corporate sustainability efforts have been good. It's not like, yeah, it's been a waste of time. But there needs to be more um, aggressive government well, policy. Okay, so I'm glad you brought that up because when I, when I read your piece, I was again reminded of the, the lofty goals that we hear from companies. And these are companies that say, okay, in three decades, we will be carbon neutral or net zero emissions. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, is anyone listening to this right now or involved in what they're saying going to be involved in this company three decades from now? Like these are goals that are, are so far away. No, absolutely. And I, and I think that's, I mean, look what we've seen just this year with, or just even last you know, mm-hmm. last week or the week before with uh, the heat in, in the Northwest yeah. and Texas earlier this year. Like this is a, you know, we're seeing the effects of climate change as we speak. You know, this is not something that's going to happen in 50 years time. We're, we're already there. Well, I, you know, because we have the Sustainable Business Summit Global going on right now by Bloomberg. It's a couple of days of programming. I, you know, and we'll hear a little bit of my conversation with the CFO of ABN InBev and also the Chief Sustainability Officer. And, you know, we talked about this and I think they would agree that it's not perfect, but it's a journey. But I think what you're saying to me is, you know, there's those slow meandering walks that we take through the park and then there's like i gotta get to work yeah. bam yeah that's where we are we th- we from what you're hearing is that we need to be more aggressive about the steps exactly i mean this is what all of these um executives or former executives have said is that you know we're in a crisis mode so yeah all of these efforts they're great all the you know, corporate sustainability efforts are good um but we are in a you know a climate crisis so they're saying that the government needs to come in and implement things like carbon taxes and, and the like, and more aggressive ones. Some more penalties to some, right? And punitive actions that if you don't abide more quickly, right, you're going to pay. Unfortunately, but we are so entangled with 
the fossil fuel industry using, you know, our existence is all, you know, fueling emissions. So we really need to sort of like change things around if we're going to meet any of these targets that companies are setting. Someone you spoke to said the problem with greenwashing is green wishing. What does that mean? <laughs> That's a great quote. Yeah. Um, so he used to work, um, uh, Duncan Austin used to work at um, Al Gore's um, investment firm. And, you know, there's always this talk about greenwashing, which is where companies or groups are exaggerating their environmental um, sort of credentials. But he's saying like green wishing, thinking that we're doing better than what we what we really are, is even more harmful because it's this sort of like false sense of sort mm. of security. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. I do feel like the EU is leading the way, especially with the government involvement, and they are putting metrics and money um, to that. Is that the model, but just a more aggressive form of what? You know, what is? I, I'm always like caught up in the specifics of what more we need to do to make it different i'm on the same same page as you on that one i mean look there are lots of things going on i mean the sec is looking at a raft of you know potential moves and yeah there's debates going on and it'd be anything from like disclosing like things like you know esg metrics and that's part of the problem right i know even the ab and bev guys are like you know the metrics between you know when you're defining e or s or t (laughs) some of them are easier than others absolutely the s seems to be the sort of the sticking point where there's just a lack of data compared with the e where there is emissions data or water usage Mm -hmm. data and and the like so it's a it's a work in motion yeah we hear from companies that that have esg products uh that investors are demanding these Mm. what do we know about actual investor demand for for products that provide more than just a return yeah no absolutely i mean you know we've got like the you know the country's biggest pension plans like calsters calpers new york city who are and and sorry new york state sorry who are really ramping up yeah because they've set their own like net zero goals right. at least on the on the west, uh, east coast here so it's all in line of sort of like divesting you know ramping up you know and putting sort of channeling capsule to sort of cleaner technologies and, and the like. That's going to help we, us all meet these goals. But ESG investing, I mean, this is part of the problem. Like, yeah, you can have a company that's working on it, but is still really hurting the environment. But people say you can be in the ESG fund because you're working right. on it. So, so as an investor, it's like, wait a minute, is really my money going to support you know, the better end, better outcome. I mean, what what somebody has said to me, it's really difficult to be a purist here. Like, we're all entangled in this. So it it, it is a work in motion, unfortunately. Which government is most aggressive right now? I mean, well, the EU, as Carol said, they they are way ahead. But, I mean, yeah, the US is fast catching up. And and again, it's like a geopolitical thing as well. Like, who wants to own this space? Who wants to own clean technologies? Who wants to be sort of like at the forefront of this sort of like transition to a low-carbon existence? But if the pandemic taught us anything, it's just a reminder that, you know, things like a health crisis or things like climate change really know no borders. So if we don't figure out something globally, um, the situation, it's already very difficult for certain parts of the world. I love, love, love this story. It's a most read, and I'll be bringing it up with some of my panels (laughs) at the Sustainable Business Summit. Um, Sejal, thank you. Really appreciate you coming by. Sejal um, Kishan, she is ESG reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio. Yeah, a great, great piece. Check it out at Bloomberg.com and on the terminal. I'm somebody who likes metrics and how do you, you know, um, measure something. And I think it's really tricky right now. We don't know. We don't know. It's not exact. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? 
Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about uh, ten and a half minutes left in today's wow, trade. Time flies, Carol, when you're having fun. <laughs> it's it has been a busy two days. Uh, lot going on, and uh, equities definitely off their highs of the session. Charlie breaking down those numbers. We're down across the board, uh, just about 0.3% down on those major equity averages. Let's get to it with Yana Barton. She is co-director of global uh, of growth equities at Eaton Vance. Co-director of growth equities. Let's get it right at Eaton Vance on the phone from Boston. Um, Yana, n- nice to have you here with us. How are you? I'm doing great. Good afternoon. Good to be with you guys again. Yeah, good to have you here. It's a funny day, bank earnings. I don't know. What what is it that you think we should be focusing on in today's trade? Well, there's a lot that is coming at investors, and I think the market is reacting to uh, pretty much a little bit for everyone. I think, you know, when you think about the marketplace as a balance sheet, there are plenty of assets and liabilities. On the plus side, I think we've got a ton of confirmation that economic recovery is with us, um, very positive comments from Jamie Dimon and the rest on the consumer spending and the sentiment. Uh, but on the flip side, obviously, the, the million-dollar question on the stickiness of the inflationary pressures and whether it remains with us for years to come or just a couple of months is um, kind of confirmation of the fact that inflation is heading higher. But I would say it's heading higher alongside higher growth rate. So uh, that equation, if holds, is is okay for now. Well, is it heading higher, though, permanently, or is it heading higher in a way that, that lumber prices headed higher? Because if we look, and we talked about this with Carl Riccadonna from Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg Economics, earlier in the day today, he pointed out that the prices for used cars and trucks, they jumped 10.5%, but that was responsible for a third of the rise of the index. Yeah, that's a fair point, Tim. And I think um, I think many of your guests previous uh, to me stated it correctly, which is some of these pre- pressures are truly going to be transitory and some are not. Lumber is a perfect example where um, it was transitory and now we're something like 40% off uh, where we were just even a couple of months ago. Um, wages, for example, you can't give somebody a raise and then take it away. Um, so I think the, the answer to the question ultimately is pricing power. That's something that we've talked about. Companies that have it and you can pass it on, um, you know, Pepsi being a perfect example of that, will not as much a detrimental uh, sort of impact to the margins as companies that have to eat the higher input costs. So um, again, it's a little bit of everything and we just have to be patient and watch what the market is giving us. So you're not worried about runaway inflation? Not yet. Uh, not yet. But I, I think I think what, what, what we are worried about is going after sort of this theme that was taking a hold in the beginning of the year, which is this reopening trade, this value trade, irrespective of, you know, legitimacy and sustainability of that trend and that growth rate. And I think the most important thing for investors to focus on is a balanced, diversified approach in in stories that are stock-specific, meaning secular growth stories with addressable market that is disrupting Alongside, alongside stable uh, growth opportunities like Apache, for example, um, and others that provide that sort of buoyancy and provide that um, eligibility to kind of play in both sides of the trade. What are some other of those stocks that you're betting on? 
So some other ones, interestingly enough, you know, where I would go is uh, with laggards. I mean, that's one area of the market. Unfortunately, hmm. we've got something like six areas of the market that have lagged the S&P 500. So I would go where the price performance and the valuation has already been reset. Technology is actually a perfect place for that. I think we're undergoing that right now, particularly within the hardware and equipment um, area of the market. Um, S&P 500 is up something like 17 and a half percentage points. But uh, tech, while definitely regained some leadership, is still lagging. Another interesting area uh, is chemicals. Believe it or not, uh, while materials um, is underperforming, interestingly enough, chemicals is trading at a discount to the market, cash flow yield in excess of four percentage points and has growth rate that is uh, double digits. So that's another area. Hey, I got to ask you, your Eaton Vance Growth Opportunities Fund, it's up uh, about 42% in the last 12 months, 91th percentile, so beating most of its peers uh, in that category. The top names, Amazon, Microsoft, Alphabet, uh, I mean, these are a bunch of your big growth names. So are you guys still all in on this? Yeah, I think um, just as a note, I'm actually no longer a PM of that strategy, uh, but I have a a ton of my own personal investment associated with that uh, strategy. I think growth is the place where you want to be right now. Um, And the names that you mentioned have more cash on hand, uh, have more uh, top line growth, and I would argue more pricing power than many of the companies um, that we talk about. Mm -hmm. So I think growth at a reasonable price is where you want to be. And many of those names, to be honest with you, are trading at a discount to their growth rate. Oh, that's interesting because I was going to say Dave Wilson was talking about technology in particular being a little hot in terms of valuation and kind of making the comparison to what we saw in the tech uh, bubble. And so I did wonder if, are you comfortable letting some of these names run a little bit hot because of who they are and their growth opportunities and possibilities and potential uh, versus maybe some other names? That's fair. I think tech is one of those areas of of the market, like industrials, where you have a ton of different industries. So there are definitely a lot of enablers and software plays that have um, had tremendous price appreciation. But if you take a step back and you think about all the things that we've been talking about, identity governance and cyber attacks and all of those things, um, there is still this wallet share that is uh, transitioning and there's still not enough money being spent on the most important things right now. And that's infrastructure Mm. as we think about sort of this digital world and digital economy that we're part of. So I think we just have a lot of investment that is still yet to take hold when we think about the overall IT spend it being in trillions of dollars and less than 10% being spent on security um, or other sort of enabling things. Hey, Jan, I want to jump back to something that you said earlier in our conversation. You said you're not concerned, and this is because this is what the market is, is doing today. This is what it's thinking about. Um, you're not concerned about inflation yet. When will you be? I think... You know, stagflation is the most, um, I think, most heated word in, in economics, which is when you just don't have enough growth to offset these taxes to your um, to your bottom line. And what we need to be mindful of, and this is why I think, you know, investors will benefit from being active in the market and responding to what the, the market is telling us. Right now, what it's telling us, exactly what you mentioned, is that, if you sort of decipher where the inflationary pressures are coming from, a third of it is, dr- is driven by 
you know, demand and supply um, dynamics that we believe are going to be transitory, some supply chain dynamics that we also, they, they might be more lingering than we'd like them to be, but should be transitory. So I, I think what, what you need to be mindful of is, is cause and effect and understanding what are the sources of the inflationary pressures and how do companies sort of offset them for the longer term. And right. that's why I go back to the big guys that do have the pricing power and can do well irrespective of the inflation um, levels that we're living with. And I do wonder, when do we respect the bond market? Do we respect it? You know, sometimes we blow it off when it gets too low, saying, well, that can't be real. Um, and then when it goes up, we're like, oh, wait, that's real. So uh, it's interesting kind of investor perspective on all of this. Uh, Yana Barton, thank you so much. Co-Director of Growth Equities at Eaton Vance, joining us once again on the phone from Boston. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.